I went to become a bomb maker. I, I went into the bomb making program for Al-Qaeda, including chemical weapons and biological weapons. You'd never think it would you to hear this lovely, sweet voice and charming and funny, but, <laughs> but he, he was a, a chemical weapons mastermind. <laughs> Welcome to Change My Mind, the podcast where we ask leaders what they've changed their mind on and why. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, Chief Exec of the Depolarization Project. You've just heard from one of our guests today, Eamon Dean, who went from making bombs for Al-Qaeda to informing on them. Alongside Eamon is his co-host of the Conflicted podcast, Thomas Small, who changed his mind on his own fervently held belief. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to invite you to sign up for our email newsletter. We promote the show with Open Democracy to their 8 million regular monthly listeners. You can find out more about this podcast and our work at depolarizationproject.com. And you can find out about the back catalogue to our shows and more information on this episode at opendemocracy.net slash depolarizationproject. As always, I'm joined for today's episode by my wonderful co-hosts, behavioural insight expert, Alex Chesterfield. Hi. Hi, everyone. And Director of Campaigns and Communication at London First, Laura Osborne. Hello. What do we need to know before we hear this interview, Alex? Well, good question. Eamon and Thomas are real experts in areas that we aren't, so the Middle East and terrorism. Their podcast, uh, Conflicted, looks at what causes violent conflict and why. It's really, it was highly recommended and I can't wait to dig into them around what behaviours are the same and which behaviours are altered by the cultural context. Absolutely. And with that in mind, we're very conscious that we and probably most of our listeners, are quite rooted in Western perceptions of conflict. So we know some of what we're going to discuss today and what you're going to hear is going to be quite challenging. Uh, And Eamon in particular made a very dramatic change when he chose to leave Al-Qaeda. Okay, with that at the front of our heads, let's hear our conversation with Eamon and Thomas. We'll reconvene afterwards to digest some of what they had to say and share our recommended reading for those interested in delving further into the topics they raise. I should say everyone is recording this in lockdown. So we're all in our own homes scattered across America and Europe. But let's give them a call. Welcome, Eamon and Thomas, to Change My Mind. I really wanted to begin by asking you about your own podcast, Conflicted, which you've just gone into the second series of. What's it all about? Eamon, do you want to answer that or should I? You start. (laughs) Uh, Well, the heart of Conflicted, especially Series 1, which launched us uh, a year ago, is the biography of this remarkable man, my friend Eamon, who was, as a young man, uh, a jihadist who then joined Al-Qaeda, who then left Al-Qaeda and joined MI6 as a double agent inside Al-Qaeda, and then left MI6 and uh, joined the banking fraternity, helping banks to combat terrorist financing and other such things. So, you know, as you can imagine, he has a remarkable life. And when I first met him and began talking uh, with him, we realized that our um, conversations were always enthralling. And then uh, a producer uh, of podcasts thought that perhaps other people would enjoy listening in on them. So Conflicted is really just Eamon and me chatting about his life and linking his life story to the wider story of uh, the modern Middle East and in series two, even even more widely into you know global issues like climate change and the, the stresses that capitalism is under at the moment. And Thomas, I, I think it might be worth, I mean, Eamon, that is quite the pen portrait that Thomas has just painted of you. Tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Or maybe I could ask Eamon to introduce you. Is that normally how you do it? Yeah, I mean, I was going to introduce him. You know, first of all, I mean, I from the moment I met him, I had such an intellectual crush on him immediately. I mean, <laughs> I mean to this day, basically like my wife is never jealous of anyone like him <laughs> because oh you oh oh amen you flatterer you flatterer so you know because basically i talk about him always basically with such reverence because i never met someone who is versed in theology in politics in philosophy in you know arabic and islam uh, islamic you know uh, studies understanding of you know, media, the Middle East, you know, understanding of Christianity and Islam and the interaction between these two religions. I mean, and at the same time, someone who actually been to my home country, Saudi Arabia, and actually, you know, went to many of the places where my former associates 
murdered people in cold blood and he documented all of these things in his book uh, he co-authored the path of blood so when i met him i was thinking wow you know this is someone basically that not just only i could have amazing conversations with but have so much discussion because how his life journey started from California, where he was born into an evangelical Protestant family, then he became an Orthodox uh, Greek monk in training, and then went to study Islam and Arabic, and then became a filmmaker. You know, talk about <laughs> you know an amazing journey. Eamon really is a flatterer. I mean, he always <laughs> uh, he always puffs me up well past my uh, you know what I deserve. <laughs> so it has been interesting. Um, or interesting increase in the work of the scholar Ibu Khaldun and his development of theories outlining us and them, which we are we are really interested in in the broader context of polarization and how our brains process us and them. So you've you studied him deeply. How do you think this translates or his work translates to the 21st century? Well, Ibn Khaldun, and I'm sure Eamon has a lot to say about him as well, was a you know a 14th century North African polymath. Whose, whose book, the Muqaddimah, which is like the introduction, because it was meant to introduce a, a much la- la- larger uh, volume of universal history, has become notorious, infamous, uh, certainly celebrated throughout the ages, as some people would say the first work of sociology, because in that work, Ibn Khaldun, for the first time really, tries to understand uh, the forces, the natural forces, if you like, that inform the rise and fall and developments within societies and political structures, almost from a secular point of view. I mean, by no means was Ibn Khaldun a secular person. He was an Islamic jurist in the Maliki school of jurisprudence. He was associated with, you know, with all the religious figures of his time. He was a pious Muslim, but his perspective does feel quite fresh and modern and to the extent that he does seem to try to extract away from social phenomena the divine and 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 try to understand its inner workings strictly as a a natural sort of phenomenon. So that and that's him. So how does he? How can he help us today? Well, I mean, I think a lot has been made of his theory of this thing. It is an Arabic word called asabiya, which is very difficult, I think, to translate into English. It is often translated as group feeling, and Ibn Khaldun uses this term asabiya to define that that special something that some groups have, usually, in his view, uh, initially groups that are outsiders, sort of barbarian-type people who live in the desert, in his world, in the desert, away from the city, but who have this incredible, strong, almost clannish connection to each other, as well as a kind of lean and spiritual orientation. So they, they're not fat by the uh, pleasures of the city. They're very strong. And they can take advantage of the decadence of the city, come in, displace the decadent hierarchies that exist and replace them, and then sort of spread, using religion really, spread their asabia, this sense of group feeling, to the populace and and knit together the polities so that it can continue to exist as one. He's writing in a very 14th century context, and I do think his, his ideas are particularly useful for understanding that context. I'm not sure how applicable they are today. A lot of people like to think that asabia can be translated to our ideas of patriotism, our ideas of, of identity, you know, of ideological identity. Conservatives often invoke Ibn Khaldun today to suggest that, you know, that we need a return to religion as a unifying force in, 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 uh, in our nation states, which are weakened. Often these conservatives, ironically, are the ones who think that there are too many Muslims living in Western countries. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, Eamon, I don't know what you, what you, what do you think about all of this, Eamon? I mean, for me, I love the workings of Ibn Khaldun because basically his Arabic is uh, reflective of the beautiful Arabic of the late Andalusian period. It's such an elegant and eloquent Arabic. Uh, the word Asabiya, I mean, I would translate it to solidarity. Um, mm. I think I feel when he, whenever, because basically the word Asabiya come from the root Usba, which uh, basically means a group, you know, basically. And yeah. so... It's the solidarity that ones feel with their with the group that they identify with. But also it could transcend into, as Thomas said basically, you know, some people will transcend into nationalism or blind patriotism. And also sometimes uh, we use the word asabiya qabaliya, which means tribal solidarity, but in a negative way, 
uh, where you know, well, you are from this tribe. You are not gonna marry my daughter because I we are from this tribe. You are from a different tribe, and so sometimes it refers even you know to negativity of the others. So sometimes it could be positive because mm. if it's uh, used in a way that inclusive and religion sometimes can be looked at as inclusive. But then if you are going to use the word Asabiya in terms of ethnic grouping, then, well, I mean, I can't help it. I was born into this ethnicity and you are telling me that you are, uh, how can I say, you only have solidarity with your own ethnic group. That's negative. Uh, mm. If you have solidarity with your religious group, well, at least in that sense, I can convert and therefore basically I can join you. And so there is a possibility of transcending. Mm. So he he was more crit- critical of the ethnic solidarity and more in favor of the religious solidarity. Mm. One aspect of Ibn Khaldun's thought that I do think is applicable in a way to today, and it's often overlooked, Asabiya for Ibn Khaldun isn't just group solidarity. It's group solidarity that is so strong that it is able to impose its will on the majority. And because he's a medieval thinker, before Mm. states were constitutional and institutional in the way that they are now, you know, a state was was maintained by basically some strong man and his loyal retainers imposing his will with the sword on everyone else. And of course, in that context, without that, you don't have a state and then you have chaos. In this context, it's less easily, you know, in our constitutional democratic orders, we, we tend not to think that what we really need to revive our societies is some barbarian group with strong sense of, <laughs> of solidarity to impose their will on us. But There are political actors at the moment in our society, both on the right and on the left, who feel disenfranchised or otherwise disillusioned with our institutions and our constitutional arrangements, who I think do sometimes use ideology to create a strong sense of solidarity with an idea of imposing that on other people, using political means, using constitutional means when it suits them, using extra constitutional means when it suits them. So that Asabiya, which in Ibn Khaldun's context of the 14th century was more entirely, let's say, positive because it did lead to the, the formation and the stabilization of states. In this context, that feeling, I think, can undermine our states. It does remind me a little bit, the Asab- Asabiya, uh, uh, forgive my probably rubbish pronunciation, of Jonathan, John Haidt, uh, so he's a professor of social and moral psychology at uh, NYU, of his... Um, the Righteous Mind. He's exactly, a great, The Righteous he's, Mind. He's very inter- a very interesting yeah. book, yeah. And his his philosophy of kind of groupish, so humans are, you know, we are selfish, but we're also fundamentally groupish. So we love to join teams, clubs, um, you know, leagues, fraternities, uh, you know, football teams, for example, and we take on those group identities and then work um, with our, you know, with people who share that identity towards common goals and sometimes those common goals I guess we adapt the norms and, and behaviors of people that we're working with towards those common goals which can also which can sometimes take over our own individual individuality it sounds it sounds fair you know fairly similar but maybe again the difference is obviously that groupishness can lead then to identifying what we're not and I guess forcing us to dislike people just because they identify with another group rather than uh, people who are on our, our team. I think there I think there is a lot that is similar. I mean I think mm. that you know Jonathan Haidt's book is interesting from my point of view because he in it I think he analyzes something like six key um or moral foundations. Yeah, six yeah. key moral foundations and what was very opening open eye opening to me is when he he sort of showed in his research despite himself being on you know on this a center left kind of liberal mm. person that those on the right, the conservatives, actually have a wider range of those moral foundations than the ones on the left, which is which was kind of, for me, a bit like, oh, because usually, you know, I'm quite a liberal person, and I, I, I often assume that liberal-minded people are, are sort of wider. They take in more of the human experience in a way, but then his book made me stop and think, well, perhaps mm. liberals are actually more narrow, ironically. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're not you're not the only one that felt that. Thomas, I just wanted to jump back ever so slightly and, and push you for an example, because you did say that you thought sometimes leaders were using ideology to divide people nowadays. And was there an example that you had in mind as you were thinking of that? Certainly uh, in the United States, the way that Donald Trump came to power, uh, although in the you know, weirdly he, you know, he was actually actually lost the popular vote. So he was not the most popular candidate, but he was sadly up against an even (laughs) less generally popular candidate. But his rhetoric was quite unique in the history of of America for someone who who got that far in the, 
in the process to be so divisive and to basically take, well, some people suggest, I think there's some validity to it, take the sort of rhetoric that identity politics had developed in order to unify left-wing political forces. He just kind of adapted that rhetoric, but for, for, for white right-wing people. And, and that was very powerful. In, in those people, one might say, it suddenly energized an asabia in them, a mm. sense that they, were, that they were united, that actually they were more virtuous, they were less corrupt, less uh, immoral than, than the people in the coasts. And they, I mean, I, a lot, too much can be made of this. I think ultimately Donald Trump is, is, is president because Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate and didn't campaign well and, and the strange... Uh, strange electoral college system and all that. But there is something to that. But on the left, I think you can see it in movements like, I mean, Extinction Rebellion or some elements of the British Labour Party that coalesced around Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I think there are, on both sides, you can you can see that happening. Yeah. And I think there'll be a lot of sympathy and support for that from our, our listeners. One thing just before we move off this topic, given your deep expertise in it, if our listeners are interested in finding out more about philosophers who maybe are not as well known in America and the US who talk about issues of us and them. Is there anyone from your work that you would recommend that they went and read? Well, I mean, no, it's not really. Uh, <laughs> let me just, <laughs> I mean, I, Do you know I think... I love it when experts <laughs> say I don't know or I'm just well, a terrible question. It makes me feel better. I mean, <laughs> I'm... Well, I'm not sure that I would call. I'm not sure I would call myself an expert on anything. I just, uh, I just know some stuff. But um, so, who can I recommend? I mean, I don't know. But I mean, I go read Jonathan Haidt if you can. Go read uh, Ibn Khaldun. <laughs> yeah, well, and and John Haidt, John's a previous guest on this podcast who actually did not change his mind on anything like as significant as where you were. Just before we we get onto that, I wanted to pass over to to Laura very quickly. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Uh, one of the things I've been wondering about here is we often talk about polarisation, particularly in the context of Western democracies, very much in terms of masses or elites. But thinking about it a bit more broadly, you know, how do you see extremism fitting into that polarisation picture? What role do you think it plays at the extreme or, or do you see extremism as a different phenomenon? Extremism, if you're talking about it within the Muslim context, is a result of polarization that happened already within the Muslim world because essentially I always tell people that the phenomenon of violent extremism that is taking place right now in the 20, late 20th and uh, in the 21st century is related to a civil war within Islam, not a war between Islam and the West as it is always portrayed. And the reason for this is because if you look at the the body count, if you are looking at the fatalities and the casualties of the wars of extremism uh, that we are experiencing, the overwhelming number of the dead, displaced, and wounded, uh, the overwhelming number of the victims are Muslims, killed by the hands of the extremists from both sides. You know, th- th- therefore, basically, why uh, do we then, uh, you know, basically associate extremism with uh, Western policy, you know, Western policies basically, is because the mistaken belief by extremists that uh, it's all to do with religion. There is an idea in their minds that American foreign policymakers, uh, British foreign policymakers, French foreign policymakers, all they do day and night, 24-7, is devising new plans to undermine Islam, to hold back Muslims from uh, becoming advanced, uh, technologically advanced countries, and keep them subjugated in order basically to have uh, free or cheap uh, you know, oil uh, flow into the West. Mm-hmm. That's what they think, which is, you know, you know, after I have spent a lot of time basically within in the Western intelligence circles, I just keep telling them, oh, you poor souls, you have no idea how incompetent they are <laughs> to even devise, <laughs> to keep devising plans like these and succeed <laughs> as if they, they really were competent enough, <laughs> as if they are good enough. The only people who hold you are yourselves. Uh, you know, but, but nonetheless, this is the reason why the polarization is happening you know, in a very strange, ironic way within Islam, within the uh, you know within the that you know the confines of that faith. Amen. I have a question for you. I mean, about yeah. based on what you've just said, because our, you know in the West, I think we often think of ourselves, Westerners, as othering Muslims, and that our othering of them 
is, is, is sort of in some way the problem, and certainly the policies that might come from our othering of them. But are you suggesting that, in fact, equally or perhaps even more so, the problem is that, that Muslims have been encouraged to other us, to think of us as the, the other that is basically very, it has only nefarious intentions over them, and that, that feeds into intra-Muslim polarization? I can tell you that every single Abrahamic religion whether it is in you know, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, encouraged to others to other people. As simple as that. Because mm. basically, if you believe that there is one true God, one true path, mm. one true you know uh, faith, therefore, basically, everything else is another. Regardless, um, so internal othering happened within Christianity before it even happened within Islam. Well, you could argue uh, that the reason that that Christians or post-Christian Westerners, whatever you want to call us, Westerners. Yeah. We other Islam is an inheritance of our Christianity. <laughs> exactly. You know, so basically Muslims are othering, you know, not only others, but they are othering themselves <laughs> um, <laughs> into Shia, Ismailis, mm. you know, and the Sunnis themselves basically are othering each other into Sufis and Deobandis and Ash'ari and Salafi and uh, Wahhabi. So, you know, so the idea that, you know, it is unique, you know, basically to the West no, it's basically almost possibly a human nature. This is what Ibn Khaldun <laughs> talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we come back yeah. to what Ibn Khaldun said. You know, we are encouraged, we are wired somehow to, you know, to do, you know, this othering. But the question is, to what degree this othering can determine, you know, day-to-day policies? If mm. it doesn't interfere that much, then that's a sign of you know, well, civility, if it becomes the only compass, the, the way you other, uh, you know, uh, people, it's the only compass of how you actually deal with people, uh, how you judge them, then it becomes a problem. It becomes negative. And that's exactly, I think, what happened. It's not the Western foreign policy uh, fault alone. It's one of the minor contributing factors. But as I have always said about the village uh, analogy, when I said, basically, imagine the world as a village and you have four corners in a center. Uh, so the four corners, you have you know, industry in one corner, you have commerce in another, you have agriculture in another, and you have uh, finance. So finance, industry, agriculture, and commerce. And in the center, there is water. And the uh, people in the four corners are depending on the center to give them water. So agriculture can flourish. So basically, there is a commerce, so there is a finance, and there is an industry. Um, but if there is instability in the center, where the water become disrupted, the water supplies become disrupted, then one of the corners or two or three of them will interfere. So I always tell Muslims, it's not, you know, where you are, you know, where the oil and the gas is, and this is the water and the story. It's it's not because of who you are; it's because of where you are. It's not because you're Muslims. You know, even if penguins were actually living in the Middle East, basically, it will still be subject to interference, Mm. you know, even despite the cuteness of penguins, because, Mm -hmm. you know, there is oil and gas as the energy. If if it's disrupted by disagreements, by internal division, Mm. some people say, well, these internal divisions could be fueled by the West. Well, yeah, and it could be fueled by the East or anyone else. The question Mm. is, why are you so vulnerable that interference could actually, you know, cause uh, civil conflicts? So Mm. the fault, I always say that the ultimate fault is not, you know, basically, you know, uh, you know, because of the because of the lions are hungry and they want to hunt buffaloes is because the buffaloes are divided. Gosh, that's a very interesting um, analogy. I, we could spend a long time digging into this, but I am very conscious that this is a podcast where we ask people about a time they changed their mind <laughs> and why. And we should probably get to the meat of it. And I know that Laura is going to kick off on that one. With <laughs> Eamon, there I is am. like, there's quite the vault face, I think, about we're about to discuss. Yeah, okay. you, you, yeah, well done for uh, well done for pulling this back on track. The rally, you're well, right. Good to listen to some to of that in. for hours. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was 
think it's um, the equivalent of shall we get another bottle of wine? But no. I have to t- I have to say, ladies, I'm I'm nursing a glass at the moment. I mean, I don't oh. think Eamon is. Though. <laughs> no, no, we, we strongly encourage a relaxed wine-based conversation on the podcast. But not ladies. not for um, not for your Muslim guests. I don't think. No. No. Well, I, I, I'm holding a can of Diet Coke. Actually, no, Coke Zero. You know, so. <laughs> Another cup of tea. So. Oh, oh. Yeah, anything tea. goes. Anything. And goes. it's it's midday here in California, so I'm, I'm waiting a few hours. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, right, Laura. So bringing us back to uh, to the cool question we asked everyone about changing their mind. Now, both of you have obviously been through some quite significant uh, changes of direction in your lifetime. So, if I start with Eamon first, you know, we we've heard you worked with Al Qaeda, you've worked with MI6. What took you first in, in the first direction, and then into the second? What what was your path? Well, what took me into the first direction, you know, which, you know, let me say it this way. I did not wake up one day, you know, when I was 16 and I decided I want to become a terrorist. It, it wasn't like that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you you slide into it, you know, uh, you know, subconsciously you go into it without noticing because events take you uh, to where you never anticipate. Um, I went to Bosnia, not because basically I wanted to become a terrorist. I wanted to join uh, the foreign uh, volunteer contingent of the Bosnian Armed Forces, uh, also known as the Mujahideen Brigade. You know, the idea is I was absolutely, you know, stunned by and shocked by the level of brutality that the Bosnian conflict was, you know, taking and, you know, the ethnic cleansing, that, you know, almost, you know, almost a genocide it was. Um, so I went there, I joined, uh, of course, spending 14 months uh, in a conflict like this, and I just arrived there just three weeks after my 16th birthday. Um, so for me, uh, it, it, you know, I remember when I left. You know, of course, I was still 17, but when I left, basically, my uh, you know, we went four and we left two only. Uh, two of our number were killed. So when 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 I left with my friend and we were in Istanbul on our way, uh, you know, to other um, you know to, uh, jihad theaters, and he asked me, "How do you feel? You know, how do you feel about the last 14 months?" I looked at him and I said, basically, I felt it was like 14 years. I can't believe it was 14 months. It felt like 14 years. I feel like I aged 14 years. Um, now, of course, you know, I, I was told that, you know, if, I, if I'm going to Chechnya, I need to improve my military skills. And so, therefore, I need to be more valuable as a mujahid. So go to Afghanistan. You know, the training camps are reopening. So I go there. And that's basically when I first encountered Osama bin Laden when he arrived back from Sudan. And that's when I encountered the head of his bodyguards, uh, Hamza al Ghamdi. And that's when I encountered firsthand the power of the prophecy, the prophecies of old, the prophecies of the Prophet Muhammad that was mentioned you know, in ancient books about you know, this divine plan for a war with the West that is going to usher in you know, a new era of Islamic um, greatness um, and the return of the caliphate and paving the way for the Mahdi, the Messiah figure I was talking about earlier. Um, I was seduced by that, of course, basically, uh, you know, because, you know, why wouldn't any 18-year-old think that they are going to be part of God's army fulfilling his plan uh, as it was preordained 1400 years ago? And so, therefore, basically, I joined uh, and I was full of, you know, zeal, you know, and I was full of, you know, uh, how can I say, a uh, sense of destiny, you know, that, you know, I'm one of God's instruments on earth. And I went to become a bomb maker. I mean, I started, I went into the, you know, bomb making program for Al-Qaeda, including chemical weapons and, uh, you know, biological weapons. You'd never think it would you to hear this lovely, sweet voice and charming and funny, but but he he was a, a chemical weapons mastermind. I'm very struck, though, by you saying you were only 18 by then uh, did you still feel 18 you know you, uh, i know that sounds like a funny question but you're saying you felt like you'd aged so much after your experiences in bosnia do you think your age was was part of it or or was it something else um, I, I don't know i felt as if my mental faculties were stretched to the limit just to mm. keep up with the task at hand um because of course but you know when you're 18 you're a teenager um, but, you know, I feel, I felt that my mind was stretched, you know, because I, I have to act like an adult, behave like an adult and, you know, learn things that only adults basically, you know, learn. 
Um, you know, between the age of 18 and 19, I was experimenting with poisons and chemical weapons and, uh, you know, uh, learning how to use them. You know, uh, you know uh, despite my rudimentary chemical uh, knowledge from school, uh, I had to be taught chemistry all over again and in a short space of time. And I have to master it in order to make sure that my first mistake is not going to be my last mm. uh, because a single mistake is going to cost you your life, uh, most likely. So I, you know, embrace that you know, so much, but then I, you know, th- th- there is always that part of me since childhood, the annoyingly inquisitive, inquisitive child within me uh, that always been there, you know, curious, inquisitive, and doesn't accept, you know, things that face value. Um, and a year after I joined Al-Qaeda, you know, fulfilled finally its promise to launch a war against the Americans, and they launched the uh, attacks against the American embassies in Nairobi and uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. So Nairobi and Kenya and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. And I, of course, was, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, I, I, I was, uh, it was a wake-up call to really what are the consequences of the things we are going to do. You know, it's yeah. different when your friends and your group tell you we have a plan and then seeing that plan in action seeing, you know, the consequences of that plan very clearly. Which was which were hundreds hundreds of dead civilians, yeah. most of whom were, were Muslims, I mean, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Many, many Muslims died that day, like, I mean, almost 100. And uh, out of the 224, I think, and also 5,000 people were wounded. 150 were mm. blinded for life. Um, I did not accept uh, the religious justification they gave. Um, the fatwa was so twisted and it wasn't applicable. Um, I believe basically that, uh, you know, the consequences, suddenly I begin to began to feel that, you know, we are only four or 500 people, you know, in Afghanistan, hijacking the decision regarding war and peace on behalf of 1.5 billion Muslims yeah. at the time and how irresponsible it is that we are going to see uh, many charities, many good projects shut down, you know, because of the association with, you know, a second or third cousin of someone who's a member of a qaeda, you know. So I, you know, I felt basically that this is not exactly something that I want to be part of. Um, mm. Two weeks after that, I went to research the fatwa, um, which I realized it was applicable to the Mongol invasion. It's about life and death. It's about something that happened 700 years ago, nothing to do with now. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, which, you know, pushed me towards um, abandoning uh, the project. Of course, I, I I did not wake up and say to myself, I'm leaving you and I'm going to become a spy. No, of course not. Did you feel there was a mix of that, that sort of impact of you seeing the consequences of the embassy bombings, but also your own inquisitiveness, which then took you into another path obviously it's not instantaneous were there a few things you think came together to change your direction yeah i mean uh, between the east africa bombings and me physically leaving al-qaeda was four months um Mm. so even though uh, two weeks after that i started to have massive doubt um but then a week after that massive doubt uh you know i survived the uh cruise missile attack by Bill Clinton, uh, which was in revenge for the East Africa bombings. Um, And uh, that was, for me, a sign that this is not the right thing to do. I remember uh, vividly that night, I thought to myself, look, where are we going? And the fact that everyone around me was celebrating, you know, this as if it was such a victory. And when I was asking, I remember... Yeah, but lots of, you know, 12 Americans, you know, who were diplomats, even if they were CIA agents, but, you know, basically, I mean, okay, 12 American CIA agents were killed. What about the 224 Africans who were at the wrong time, at the wrong place? You know, many of them are Muslims, you know. Uh, So some were saying, oh, God will make it up to them. And yeah, so we were playing the part of God here. And and there are others, basically, who even were worse. They're saying, oh, come on, bunch of Africans, who cares? You know, so apart from playing the part of God, there was also the, you know, very overt racism um, and superiority complex that were, you know, very much on display there, which made me even more um, uneasy. Um, So, 
so so I decided, you know, well, the time has come to leave. Um, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going back to the Gulf. I'm going to go into university, uh, study history and become a history teacher. Now, much to the relief of my would-be students, it never happened. I mean, they are. <laughs> I <laughs> That's mean, not the way things went. <laughs> uh, no, I think, uh, I think now, you know, by that time, I, you know, I just, uh, you know, uh, I, I think six weeks after the East Africa bombings, I became 20. And uh, maybe, I've, you know, I thought, okay, I'm entering a new decade of my life. Maybe it's time to, you know, wrap up this, uh, you know, uh, you know, this experience that is, accelerating yeah. towards disaster um, and yeah. just go back, you know, into education. Uh, how naive it was. Uh, I ended up basically, <laughs> you know, uh, being treated as a guest of the uh, state security forces in Qatar uh, who intercepted me when I was leaving. But him, th- sorry, them believing mm. that my leaving was genuine um, and it was demonstrated very quickly that it was genuine. They believed me very quickly. Um, you know, they were impressed, and as a result, basically, they facilitated the recruitment into MI6. And just before we move on to hear from Thomas, I have one, I have one more question. I, you know, I still can't quite get the idea of you being 16 in the first place out, out of my mind. But is there anything you think could have been done to stop you being in that position in the first place? You know, or interventions you think would have kept you um, from following, you know, quite an extreme path at, at such a young age? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't know, to be honest, I think I always uh, used to think because basically I, uh, you know, I lost my parents at a young age. I mean, my father died when I was four and mother when I was 12. So for me, I think if my mother was there when I was 16, I might have not left. But not something that anyone else could really have stepped in to. I think, I, I think she would have been the only force to have stopped me. Apart from that, no other force, no other intervention could have really worked if I I was determined to go but Eamon what if you'd met someone that is like you is 41 now who had gone through what you and and, you know you at 16 met 41 year old Eamon or a guy like you could he not have talked you out of it because you now try to talk young people out of their going to Mm. jihad I tried to talk my nephew out of it and he died still in Syria Mm. I mean he was 19 did my best like you know basically I pleaded with him I even cried I even like you know you know, basically kiss his hand and told him, please don't go. And, you know, in the end he did. And uh, I had to uh, go myself in September of uh, 2013. I ended up going to Syria just to visit his grave, Uh, you know, taking a a huge risk, you know, despite the fact I have a fatwa on my head. Um, But it it didn't work. Uh, It worked with others, uh, you know, afterwards, but only I was helped by the atrocities of Daesh, uh, of ISIS, uh, that helped, you know, their atrocities helped, you know, shape my argument and, you know, giving me ammunition to use. Um, but before that, you know, when, you know, my nephew went in July of uh, 2013, uh, their atrocities were not, you know, very common, not very visible. And therefore, basically, it was for him a clear cut. He was saying to me, people are dying. And he said, like, you know, when people were dying in Bosnia, like, you know, I mean, was there anyone going to stop you? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, in the end, basically he, uh, did what he thought was right. And in the end he paid the price for it. And I just, I mean, I, I want to acknowledge how tremendously tough that, that must've been for you. And thank you for sharing it. I wanted to slightly step back to your story though, Eamon, and ask what it was that meant that you didn't just, that, that, that you really did change your mind. So rather than just leaving Al Qaeda, what was it that persuaded you to then become, an informant. When I was leaving Afghanistan, um, I remember there is a prayer that you know I'm sure uh, Thomas is very f- familiar with. It's called the Stikhara. You know, it's a kind of like you know guidance prayer. You know, where you know you pray and you ask the Lord, you know, through His infinite wisdom, knowledge, and kindness, to guide you through. I said, you know, I, I prayed and I said, you know, I'm putting my life, you know, my whole you know, uh, destiny in your hand. Wherever you take me, I will follow. So landed in Qatar, got arrested. And I thought if it was part of the plan, it is part of the plan. Then when I was put through that uh, proposition that I will end up debriefing, I wasn't told I'm going to become a spy. I was told it's going to be a debrief. It will last two months and then you will be on your own. 
you know, basically you can, you know, basically go to university in the UK, you can um, continue your education, you will be fine. Uh, of course, the two months became six months uh, of debriefings. <laughs> it turns out I knew too much. Um, and, uh, you know, with, you know, a few months into the debriefings, it became clear that, you know, I was being, you know, gently, you know, persuaded, you know, basically into becoming more than just, you know, part of a debriefing uh, to become, you know, I, someone who will eventually become a spy. Um, and, you know, I, and I went along with it because it's not just only me, but, you know, the people I met um, were of the highest quality, people who could persuade you to do anything <laughs> without feeling any pressure or, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like someone telling you go to hell in a way that will make you look forward to the journey. <laughs> I know, I know some of those people They're they're quite amazing and tricky at the same time. Um, yes. <laughs> but I'm really struck that the way you're describing this is that you were, it wasn't a conscious decision, particularly on your part, that you were persuaded almost without knowing into changing your mind. Is that, or changing, really changing your behavior in a very dramatic way. Is that a fair interpretation? Uh, to some extent, yes, because if, look, if you put your faith in God and you say that wherever you take me, I will accept wherever you take me, I will go along with it. Whatever you choose for me, you know, you know, because that's it. It's not like I never gave God the option and then I thought, well, what, what, what have I done? I gave him the option. <laughs> so at least I could stand in the day of judgment and I say basically, well, I I, I told you, I put my, you know, uh, destiny in your hand, wherever you take me, I'll accept. And therefore, when the events played along these lines, I just went along with them. Um, and then during the debriefings, Remember, the debriefings are not just only basically them pumping me for information. You know, the pumping goes both ways, where they are pumping me also, you know, basically with ideas about how, you know, first of all, how good it was of me to change, uh, you know, a course, that I'll be saving lives, that by giving information about active cells, I'm already saving lives, and telling me about, you know, and, and the fact that the person who is sitting across, you know, the sofa from me, you know, who's, you know, um, very well versed in the Quran and Arabic, and he's an English guy from Manchester. But he said to me that, remember the verse in the Quran, which says, whoever, you know, saves a life as if he saves all of mankind, and whoever caused a life to die as if he killed all of mankind. And so I thought, wow. I mean, so the idea, and then they go into, you know, the importance of the nation state, the importance of, uh, saving lives, the importance, you know, of making sure that this monster doesn't become a greater monster. And they keep telling me that, remember that when people go down the rabbit hole of extremism, extremism will end up cannibalizing itself from within because the extremists will start to accuse others of being less loyal and not extreme enough. And therefore, you know, zealotry will be get more zealotry. All of these ideas, you know, uh, which they were, you know, uh, pumping into me, basically, more or, more or less convinced me of the righteousness of the decisions that were laid out in front of me, and I took them. And, you know, so, uh, so in the end, when they told me seven months after I arrived, will you go back? And I, without hesitation, I said yes. Thank you. Thomas, you have also been on quite a dramatic change though not quite in the same not scale, nearly as dramatic as that i'm afraid the listeners <laughs> now is now going to be much less uh, uh, impressed well, nah. I, I, you, you i yeah we can we can cheer you on in the background you know you talked in the very first episode of your podcast actually about how you were planning to become a greek orthodox monk and then chose not to and i wanted to talk slightly to get a bit of a background about how did you end up deciding to become an orthodox monk and then what triggered the change in decision well, the first thing you need to know about me, and I think it's probably because I'm a Taurus, uh, that I don't actually change my mind very easily. Uh, I would say <laughs> it's more like the Titanic changing its course than just, you know, than, than pivoting on, your, on an axis. But um, yeah. I, was, I, I grew up um, in, in the suburbs of California. I attended every week a, a pretty mainstream evangelical church. Uh, my father taught the creationism course in the Sunday school. So 
you know, I, I don't want you to get the idea that we were swivel-eyed loons. We were pretty straight, straightforward, uh, run-of-the-mill evangelicals. Um, but I was, I believed that the Bible was uh, the inerrant truth uh, that uh, dinosaurs and men lived together uh, uh, at one point in time, that the flood actually happened, that Jesus actually was God, that he died, he rose again, he had come again. The whole thing, I just, I believed it. Uh when I was about 16, say, and it's weird because Eamon's story and my story actually have some weird con- sort of inter, inter- it, 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 they interlap a bit, even though his is more Muslim and mine is more Christian. Uh, and when I was 16, it, the, the idea of hell started to sit very sort of uneasily with me. And I didn't really like the idea that if you weren't an evangelical Christian, you were going there. It just didn't, it sort of didn't rub me the right way. And I didn't know why exactly, but uh, I started to read. And then I was introduced to Sufism, which is the mystical tradition of Islam. Um, And especially Sufi metaphysics, which are kind of neoplatonic and universalist in their, in their uh, foundations. And they basically teach that, that every religion is a kind of form of a, of a, of a, transcendent truth that is the same, that all the religions are paths to that truth and that there's no need to to really other, if you like, the um, people, practitioners of other religions. Well, I, I like this very much and I was attracted to Sufism and, and I was actually thinking of becoming a Muslim, um, weirdly enough, and, until I realized that in Greece there was this place called Mount Athos where for the last thousand years monks were participating in a, in a kind of tradition of mystical prayer that was quite similar to Sufism, from what I could tell from my reading. So when I was 20, I just left home and I went to Mount Athos, where I spent six months, was baptized. I sort of left and came back then to become a novice, uh, thinking that I would stay forever uh, as a monk. And and while I was there, a sort of strange thing happened. I, I sort of increasingly realized that the, the, my fellow monks um, were not so interested in the universality of, of, of world religions. And they were, um, you know, uh, when they opened their hearts to you, you realize that they, they had rather dismissive attitudes towards not just wholly other religions like most, like, you know, Islam, but Roman Catholics, they were probably going to hell. Protestants were pretty much certainly going to hell. And so I had gone from kind of suburban uh, Californian evangelical megachurches with rock bands and everything, all the way to Greece to, to a medieval form of worship that had no electricity uh, in the, in, and we were wearing black robes and we were up all night fasting and praying vigils, you know, and yet the attitude was the same. Um, and it sort of reached a, a peak in me, weirdly enough, on Christmas Eve one night and I, I had this, this thing niggling, niggling at my mind uh, and we had been told that we must always confess our thoughts openly to the abbot. That was part of the thing. We must be honest with the abbot about our thoughts, even if they were dark thoughts, because in conversation, you can, you know, such thoughts are dispelled. So in the middle of the night, I knocked on his door and he opened the door and I said, Abbot, I've just got to tell you something. I think Muhammad was probably a prophet. Now, that might that sounds ridiculous, I suppose, but to a Greek Orthodox monk, that was that was just sort of like the most insane thing to think because Muhammad is is uh, the great antichrist in in their views. So that caused a problem, uh, and then a couple of months later, my brother visited to to see me, and after only three days in the place, he took me aside and he said, uh, "Thomas, you do understand that these these people are just like." the fundamentalists we grew up with, because he had left, you know, Christianity by that point. You do understand that it's just, it's just the, the, the surface that's changed, but these people are still fundamentalists. And, um, and, I, and I had by that time just not, I had become non-fundamentalist. It didn't wash with me at all. I, I, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't be that way. So the next morning I, I told the abbot, I, I have to leave. Now he, he did say that if I left, the Holy Spirit would abandon me. Um, that this was the devil talking, uh, as a result of which I spent a good decade feeling quite kind of, um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say traumatized, but I, you know, there was always this slight niggling voice in me that I had made the wrong choice and, and that I should have stayed a monk. But, um, but I did, I ultimately couldn't be fundamentalist and, um, 
and it does seem in in this day and age that that um, committed religious practice requires that more often than not. So if you just don't have that in you, committed religious practice is a, is a difficult thing to embrace. I would say honestly. And I don't want the listener at all to get the sense that the monks that, that the monks that I lived with were bad people or anything. Not at all. They are much better people than me. <laughs> really much better. They're they're quite saintly, and the abbot is quite saintly, and 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 they and, and the experience in the monastery was incredibly useful for me. And it you know taught me it taught me prayer, which is an important I think life skill to put it in secular terms. And it taught me all sorts of things. Uh, and I grew up a bit like Eamon, maybe on the in the battlefields of Bosnia in the monastery in Greece. I was sort of forced to stop being a schlubby suburban kid, uh, and I I, I, I kind of became a man. It was quite initiatic in that way. Um, and and ultimately, I don't hold it against the monks there that they didn't share with me uh, a perspective that was anti fundamentalist, if you like. I mean, most of them were from the island of Cyprus. They come from you know quite sort of simple backgrounds. They, they're, they're pious Greek Orthodox Christians. And in fact, the abbot of that monastery uh, during, the, during the, the Turkish invasion of Cyprus in the, in the 70s, he, he saw his, um, you know, his own father was murdered in front of him by a Turkish soldier, which of course only solidified it in his young mind, the, the impression he'd been given that Muslims were Satan worshippers. Um, so, you know, I can, I can see his, his and, and, and they have their own thing. And, you know, I think it is probably for those people who are suited to it, doing a lot of good for them, but it just wasn't right for me. So I'm not actually sure if that, if that is changing my mind in a way, it's more like not allowing my mind to be changed, but, um, I don't know. But it is interesting, the commonality in some ways, as you say, of your two stories, Thomas, you talk about, you know, being, um, put off by the indiscriminate nature of condemning everyone to hell and, Eamon, you talked about the indiscriminate nature of killing innocent people in the in the course of something else. So it, it does seem like there's a a, a sort of um, a reckoning with the consequences that affected you both uh, at a particular yeah. time in your lives. I think you know Eamon earlier talked about you know the the Abrahamic religions, which are in their own ways very sophisticated uh, civilizational constructs that that evolved in in an imp- in imperial contexts to help govern enormous polities. It's, a, it's, it, it's very difficult for us to imagine, you know, what it would have been like when Christianity was the ruling ideology of, of a world-straddling empire. And for that reason, these, these religions are actually very sophisticated at creating that asabia, that group togetherness that is required for polities to function uh, and which does demand a certain amount of othering that's there. But at the same time, these religions have the other side where they are sometimes universalist in their, in their scope. And, you know, like on the one hand, Jesus seems to be sending half of humanity to hell. On the other hand, there's the parable of the good Samaritan. And he says, you should love everyone regardless of their religion. And, and it seems like a contradiction. And maybe, you know, these big empires, these state structures need to learn how to balance, you know, both enough group feeling to keep us together, but not so much that the different tribes amongst us are fighting each other. And and maybe that's that kind of weird balance is something that we today need to learn how to do, because as we become more polarized, sometimes I think we do lose sight of, you know, we're all so certain that we know the, the the right way to run our countries or to, you know, who to vote for or whatever, which political party to support. We, and we just demonize the other and we forget to, to kind of lend, uh, to, we, we have to be solid in our beliefs. We have to vote for our candidate, but we can also at the same time remember that there's a kind of wider circle of, of, of unity that, you know, whether that be our humanity or our national or whatever, it's maybe, maybe weird. We don't have that balance, right? Just like a lot of religions often don't get the balance, right? But we, we should try. Who would you like to hear from about a time that they've changed their mind on an issue? So if you could invite one, one guest, they could be alive, alive or dead to ask, what have they changed their mind on? Who would it be? I'm just trying to think. Well, Thomas, I think... if you've got one. <laughs> I'd, 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 I'd like to hear, I'd like to know if Tony Blair ever changed his mind. Okay. Because he seems to be someone who, who sticks quite passionately to, to decisions and to mm. views on the world. And, 
Um, I, I wonder, I would like to hear from him. Perhaps you yeah. actually have interviewed him and you can tell me, go to episode 39. <laughs> <laughs> Although, well, interestingly, he's changed his faith or denomination. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, he converted to Catholicism. Yeah. Th- that's true. He yeah. did convert to Catholicism. That is yeah. true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, maybe not then. Yeah. But no, that's, but that's, but I, <laughs> I think if anyone's Tony's listening, that yeah. has a link to Tony actually, Blair. Actually, we've got a few. <laughs> we um, still that, take him. <laughs> <laughs> but he, I think for Tony, the, the interesting thing would be not just changing his mind, but admitting he's changed his mind. And some of the issues where people might, might want him to might not be those where it goes through. Eamon, I've given you a bit of time. Okay. I think I would really, really love to listen to Malcolm X, you know, and how he changed his mind about, you know, basically that uh, everyone else was a devil, you know, to basically, you know, coming back uh, from... Uh, his experience in the Hajj, believing basically that, um, well, I mean, you know, the whites are not the devil, uh, mm. and the generalization and mm. the general judgment of everyone basically was wrong. Um, so, because because many people, you know, especially like you know within the Black Lives Matter movement, many other, um, you know, anti uh, establishment in the white movement, basically, uh, you know, view him as the symbol of. Uh, a revolution as a symbol of in a black power um but really the last you know i think year or year and a half of his life he changed his mind significantly you know fundamentally uh, on the question of race relations you know he's no longer you know preaching the gospel of uh, segregation or you know separation as as a result of a of a deepening conviction to islam i believe exactly yes you know you know so i would love to have had more from him about what changed his mind. Although he did say, you know, in his experience when he said basically that in the Hajj he was, you know, eating and drinking next to people basically who were whiter than white and their, you know, uh, uh, eyes were blue and their hair was blonde and he never thought he will ever do this again. But it happened and he felt such a spiritual awakening there that, you know, we're all humans, you know, we're all, you know, have aspirations and that, you know, you do not judge you know, uh, people by the wrongs of, you know, either their leaders or, you know, few among them. So I think I just, I would love if he would have had the chance to really write about that transformation. Well, thank you. And it, it, what's interesting is uh, we hope we're being connected to someone who worked quite closely with him. Wow. Um, oh, so wow. That's <laughs> excellent. Oh, wow. So, so I might, well, I can't, don't want to promise the listeners anything yet. <laughs> It's amazing where this podcast takes you. A huge thank you, Thomas Damon, for joining us. Our pleasure, I'm sure. Before we discuss that pretty incredible interview, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Mary Fitzgerald, Editor-in-Chief at Open Democracy. We exist to bring you the latest reporting and analysis on social and political issues around the world. We're here to educate citizens, challenge power, and encourage democratic debate, just as this podcast does. To find out more about us or to make a contribution to our work, visit opendemocracy.net. So, Laura, what was the key takeaway for you from that conversation with Eamon and Thomas? Well, I was quite nervous before this one, actually, but I shouldn't have been. On the one hand, it was such an honest insight into one person's path to extremism, Eamon was so honest about how hard it is to disrupt that. But what touched me most emotionally was when he talked about his mother and then his nephew. And so on the other hand, talking to Thomas, you know, it was his realisation that he'd swapped one belief system for another when really he wanted to question all-encompassing beliefs. Ali, what about you? Yeah, like you, I was really incredibly struck by that moment when he talked about his nephew and the near futility of being able to dissuade people from taking up arms even when they're among your nearest and dearest. So it was a real reminder to me of how tough it it is very often for people to change their mind and update their beliefs. Alex, what really chimed with you? I think for me, it was when Eamon said he he didn't decide to be a terrorist overnight and it was a gradual thing. So for me, this really chimed with some prior research around unethical behavior in in corporate organizations. It's called the slippery slope hypothesis. And it tries to explain why, you know, why good people do bad things. It's basically, you know, you don't overnight turn from a good person to a bad person. 
But instead, you do one small act of indiscretion, which then may lead over time to larger unethical acts. And basically, you just become more immune to what you're doing. So it becomes normal over time. That was what really struck struck me. Yeah, and, and you can find more about The Slippery Slope and about the work of Ibn Haldun and links to Eamon and Thomas's podcast, Conflicted, on opendemocracy.net slash depolarization project. If Eamon and Thomas have inspired you to think of a time you changed your mind and why, we'd love to hear about it. At the end of this series, we'll be doing a special listeners edition of the show featuring them. If you email alison at depolarizationproject.com and tell us about it, we'll give the best response a copy of Eamon's new book, Nine Lives, My Time as MI6's Top Spy in Al-Qaeda. If you want to hear more about Thomas and Eamon's work, then search for Conflicted, their podcast, wherever you listen to yours. That's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Change My Mind. If you liked what you heard, don't forget we've got a full back catalogue of interviews with leaders that you can find them all by searching for Change My Mind in your podcast app. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Moving to America, where we talk to one of their leading animal rights campaigners about how meeting her enemy opened her eyes and changed her mind. Thank you to Open Democracy for their support of the show, to Caroline Crampton for editing and producing, and to Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real, is our theme music.